From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Ali Siadatan is standing by and he'll join me for the next two hours as we discuss the gods of the Bible. You may ask, how could there be gods, plural, in the Bible when there's only supposed to be one God, capital G, according to Scripture? So were these gods merely idols or were they actual supernatural beings? We'll get into that in just a moment. Owen Wolf is my technical producer, and we are coming to you live, uh, but no live stream tonight on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. No live stream on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Uh, that should return next week, if everything works according to uh, to Hoyle. And next week, uh, actor, comedian, television host, and the only performer to win uh, Emmy Awards for both entertainment and news shows, John Barber will join me in studio, and John is known as one of the hosts of the NBC reality TV series, Real People. Remember that? That ran on uh, NBC back in, I think, around 1979 to 84. And uh, he was also the creator and co-producer. But John Barber is also a JFK assassination researcher and one of the only people to interview the late New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison on camera. So, John Barber next week for the full two hours live in studio. The gods mentioned in the Old Testament were worshipped by the people of Canaan and the nations surrounding the Promised Land, but were these idols just made-up deities, or did they actually possess supernatural power? Now, many Bible scholars are convinced that that some of these so-called divine beings could indeed do amazing acts because they were demons or fallen angels disguising themselves as gods. In Deuteronomy, it says they sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they had known. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate some of his miracles, such as turning their staffs into snakes and turning the Nile River into blood. Some Bible scholars attribute those strange deeds to demonic forces. So, let's discuss the gods of the Bible. Ali Siadatan is the founder of Think Again Productions here in Canada, a multimedia teaching ministry, shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is to make the Bible more real than ever. Ali has found evidence, keeps agreeing with the Bible tale, from biblical cities peering through the sand to alien abductions and prophetic events. In 2006, Think Again Productions released the groundbreaking documentary UFOs, Angels and Gods. On Google Video, it received over a quarter million views in just nine months. In 1996, Ali completed a master's degree in French language and literature at the University of Toronto. In September of 99, he answered a call and opened a center to minister to urbanites through martial and healing arts, as well as spiritual studies for seekers. Ali has a black belt in Kung Fu and has been training since 1991. He's married and has two wonderful daughters. His research into UFOs has inspired him to write a work of fiction in progress, as well as a second documentary on the rise of the Antichrist titled Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, 
and Titans. Ali Siadatan, welcome aboard, my friend. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you guys tonight. It's great to have you. Let's just begin with a very simple question, and I mentioned this off the top, and that is, the gods mentioned in the Bible, were they merely idols? We were warned, the very first commandment, do not worship any other god before me. Are we talking about idols, or were they actual supernatural beings? Well, in the biblical text, the way that the Bible's narrative addresses these beings, it talks about them as though they are real. For instance, one of the titles of God himself, as it appears, let's say, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, and in other places as well, it's one of the titles of God, he's referred to as the God of gods and Lord of lords. In Hebrew, it's El of the Elohim and Adon of the Adonim. And you think to yourself, well, how could God be the leader of mythological beings? How could he be enshrined, his title be presented as one who is in fact the leader of a group of mythological beings? And then there are countless passages like, you know, the Ten Commandments that you mentioned, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But there are many passages where God addresses these other beings. You mentioned Moses and, and Egypt, for instance, the Exodus passage in Exodus chapter 12, I believe it's also verse 12, it says that God will come into the land of Egypt and he will judge the gods of Egypt. Uh, the power that was behind the Pharaoh, the power that was holding his people uh, hostage. And so we're looking at the way that the text speaks about these beings. There are thousands of verses to study, but... I can tell you, since I have, overwhelmingly it's very clear that God addresses the gods of the nations in the text itself as though they are real beings. Right. There's a passage in Deuteronomy where the Israelites are forbidden from worshipping the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is kind of on the surface. That's kind of a strange passage. So what is he saying there, worshipping the sun, the moon, and the stars? Well, the stars were an idiom for, you know, these spiritual beings in the ancient world's mind. Even in the Bible, it is an idiom for angels. For instance, in the book of Revelation, it says that the dragon took one-third of the stars with him, with his tail. And anyone reading that, there's a complete agreement uh, that this refers to angels that went on his side. So in that sense, it is kind of speaking in the language of the mindset of the time of Moses. It wasn't just worshipping, you know, the sun per se, or the moon per se, or the stars per se, but the gods, if you will, that governed these mighty, incredible things. Uh, the spiritual forces that were identified by them is what is referenced in the language of, you know, uh, Moses' time. So these gods, small g, plural, these were the fallen angels, correct, that rebelled against God, led by Lucifer. Well, that's an interesting question, because the term fallen angel does not appear anywhere in the entire Bible. It is a term of Christian culture. In the Bible, these beings are called the sons of God, and they're also called the gods of the nations. These are the two titles given to these beings. And as the story unfolds, 
we see that they come under the judgment of God. We see that they create empires that are to be hostile to God's purposes as it expresses itself through Israel. And then there are clues that we are given, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, which I believe you quoted at the beginning of the show. They sacrificed unto demons, which were no God, to gods they knew not. And Paul, who is also essentially a Jewish teacher, in the letter that he writes to the Corinthian church, he quotes this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He says that, you know, the Gentiles are sacrificing to devils. Or, or, or some translation will say the Greeks uh, are sacrificing to devils and not to God. And he says, you know, I don't want you to partake in those rituals in the marketplace where if you were in Corinth and you were involved in the, in the, in the trade of gold and silver, in the market there might be these, you know, deities that are sacrificed to and, and you want to do that with the rest of the people in your section of the marketplace because, you know, it's kind of politically incorrect not to. And so he's saying, well, I don't want you to, to engage because these gods are actually the devil. So we get these clues that there's animosity. And then there are other passages such as Daniel chapter 10 that talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. There is, you know, the passage where Jesus and Satan have a conversation and Satan says that dominion has been given to him over all the kingdoms of the earth and these kingdoms answer to these beings. And so you realize as the text unfolds that these sons of God or the gods of the nations are in fact hostile and then the book of Revelation comes at the very end of the biblical narrative and brings this clarification that in fact one third of these angels have gone along with the rebellion and so the picture completes itself that these characters that we're reading about in all of these passages that are behind the nations are in fact what Christians would call fallen angels. Yes, in that sense, they become those characters. As the text weaves them into its narrative, that is the position that they will occupy, yes. And at what point in ancient history was this deal struck that God said, okay, you fallen angels, you will have dominion over all of this land, but Israel is mine. When did God make that overture? I would have to say that it occurred at the Tower of Babel in uh, Genesis chapter 11. Until then, the nations were united as a single family. Before the flood, there was this massive pull into the sphere of these beings called the sons of God. And, you know, they had their offsprings that are called the Nephilim in Hebrew, the giants in, in, uh, in English. And this led to uh, the end of an entire world order. Um, however, uh, for instance, in, let's say in, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. So the, the after the flood, there is again an attempt uh, of massive rebellion. It seems that Nimrod, even though the biblical text doesn't, you know, record all the details, it seems that Nimrod essentially makes the argument that, you know, God is the bad guy, he, des he destroyed the world with a flood, he destroyed our ancestors, but these other beings, they, um, they were kind of with us. 
And so there is a rebellion that he uh, he creates, a post-flood rebellion, which is related to these beings, where he wants to establish a world order. He's kind of uh, the first post-flood emperor, and he has these beings behind him, and the challenge is directly against God. And, and the reason for that is because man was made in the image of God, the angels were present. It, the story doesn't essentially make sense if you cut it into pieces. We are part of a cosmic tale from the very beginning, and that's why these beings have been on the earth and continue to come and go, and people see them actually all the time. We just have new terms for them in in our culture. However, um, God comes with his council of angels, and the humanity is divided. The languages are confused, and the nations are born, essentially, at that point. And so that becomes the moment where I think that this whole division uh, occurs. And that's why the next chapter, chapter 12, is the chapter that introduces the character of Abraham, who is going to have a different classification. And God is going to um, you know, separate Israel for himself, for his purposes, ultimately to bless the nations and to call them back to himself. But it begins a process. And the nations are given into the hand of these beings that set up worship over them. And this is the origin of polytheism. Okay, but God allowed these other deities uh, to rule, right? I mean, he could have stopped it, but he allowed it. And did he not sort of keep an eye on, on them? Did he not sort of give lay down the law, read the right act, and said something like, all right, you you're going to rule over the rest of the world, but you must you must do it in a just manner. Yeah, I think that the laws of the kingdom of God are clear to these beings who are more ancient than us. We're just discovering God essentially. These beings have known him longer than we uh, than the human race has ex- have existed. Um, but there is an ambition. We, we read that ambition in the scroll of Isaiah concerning you know the heart of Satan, that he wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to be the first principle of the created order. And these beings share in his ambition. So instead of you know leading the nations to worship God, they, they deflect that worship to themselves. Um, and more than that, they give laws, which are the foundations of, uh, I guess, the religions that they, get, they hand down. And they create priesthoods, they create temples, they set up kings and kingdoms. They essentially do all the things that it seems that God ultimately is interested in doing, but they pervert it. Um, let me just uh, finish the answer by reading a passage from the book of Psalms. Um, it says, God takes his stand, God takes his stand in the assembly of God. He judges among the gods. It says that. It says that God has an assembly, and we see that in the book of Kings, because he questions his assembly concerning a matter. This is like a divine of, council, right? It's like a divine council. And then it says that he judges among the gods. And then it continues, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? As it comes forward, it says, all of earth's foundations are shaken. I said, you are gods, and you are all the sons of the Most High. Yet you will die like men. And will fall like any of the princes. It kind of perhaps is a judgment over these beings because as you suggest, they they had a, their own agenda and that is what they implemented. 
uh, on the earth. Uh, man was cast out, out of this great kingdom of gods, and so were these beings. And for a moment in history, we found ourselves on the same side of the fence, but God had a plan to bless the families of the earth in the seed of Abraham. And that is the story of the Messiah and the redemption, uh, which is at the heart of, of the Gospels. Ali Siadatan is uh, my guest, and he is with Think Again Productions, thinkagainproductions.com. You can, you can stream the video there for free, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that's UFOs, Angels, and Gods, and uh, you have some other things that we'll talk about, a newsletter and so forth. Uh, but I, I want to get back to this idea of when the, 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 these lesser deities, these gods with a small g, uh, were given dominion over these other lands. So were they ruled directly by, let's say, uh, Lucifer and, and his minions? Were they ruled directly or did they appoint, did they appoint humans to rule and, and uh, they sort of oversaw that rule? Uh, yeah, the, the answer to that question is very clear. So, so if you kind of look at history, we see that the, all civilizations attribute their genesis to the gods. That is the story of all the civilizations of the earth. Let me just take you a quick, through a quick kind of show. Let's look at it from a bird's eye view. Um, you, you've got, um, uh, people who are living, um, as hunter gatherers. There is, the family of Adam, you know, they're farmers, they have domesticated animals. Um, but suddenly, from the south of Mesopotamia, from the north of Africa, and from kind of the uh, parts of Persia, what is today Persia, uh, these cities begin to emerge, but especially from the south of Mesopotamia. And there is what is called an urban revolution, which means that the way that society is organized shifts from being around clans and families to around these priest kings. The, the, the Mesopotamians called them NC or Lugal. Um, they were these priest kings that represented the gods. So codes of civilization are handed down. Um, the, the most recent example of this is the birth of Islam. Um, the, the Arabs are living in a peninsula um, surrounded on one side the Persian Empire, on the other side the Greek Empire, civilizations much older than themselves, literate, sophisticated. The um, one of these uh, gentlemen in Arabia says that he's receiving a you know a revelation from his God, and suddenly um, the, the Arabs undergo a, a profound transformation as this revelation downloads. They now have a world view. They have an understanding of how to organize their culture, but they also seem to have some sort of a spiritual force behind them because within a hundred years, they conquer the mighty Persian Empire and the Greek world um, in one hundred years. I mean, the only thing that's left is Byzantium or Constantinopolis itself, which eventually falls in 1453. But it's really incredible if you read the accounts of these battles and these victories, and it's like, how did this happen? Now, if you go back in history, you read the story of Moses. Moses goes up on a mountain. He receives a code of law. He comes down. The Hebrew nation is born. There are 613 commandments that govern every aspect of life. There's uh, uh, prophecies, a relationship with a deity that is going to change the world. I mean, the Ten Commandments of Moses are still encoded in our laws here in the New World. Ali, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a, a time out. 
We'll come back and pick up on that point. Ali Seattan, Think Again Productions, Gods of the Bible. Stay with us. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Now, I would ask that you keep your powder dry until the second hour, and then you can call in. Just listen in on the uh, the conversation, Ali Siadatan, with us as we discuss gods of the Bible. And uh, then, as I say, at the top of the uh, the next hour, we'll open up the phone, loon, uh, phone lines, and you can uh, you can weigh in, and we'd love to hear from you. So, Ali, the, one of the the interesting things is, so you had this Sumerian. Civilization, I guess, somewhere between 3,500 and 3,000 BC, and just uh, out of nowhere, this we had this sudden surge in population. We had these cities of Ur and Uruk, and and uh, the development of uh, well, even the you know the 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 structure of the civilization. You had libraries, you had domesticated um, plants and animals, uh, and you know where elsewhere in the world. People were still, you know, living in mud huts. It was, it's startling. Uh, yes, but that makes that makes sense in what light of your saying. Uh, well, that, it, when when you look at uh, the archaeologists that you know when digging in Mesopotamia, starting in the mid 19th century, when they came to the final city Eridu, and you can read about this, uh, you can Google Eridu, E R I D U, and read its history in Wikipedia. It is the oldest known city. Um, and they discovered that that city had temples, had structure, uh, had mud bricks. It was, it had civilization. And they were baffled. No matter how old the digs were, how ancient the cities were, they were fully civilized. And now the question was, where did this knowledge come from? So they turned to the Mesopotamian tablets because these guys were literate. They had writing. And they explained their own history. And they said in these tablets that these beings that they refer to as gods, even though they are just angels and they are fallen, um, these beings gave them a series of, 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 uh, of knowledge, uh, which is called meh. That's what they called it, meh, in Sumerian. In, in uh, Semitic languages, it's called parshu, uh, which ironically sounds a lot like parsha which is the scrolls of the Bible in Hebrew, uh, like these bodies of heavenly knowledge. You can even read it on Wikipedia. There's a list of all the meh. And so there were four cities in the south of Mesopotamia, and each one received a different you know, gifts of knowledge. For instance, you mentioned the city of uh, Eruk, where uh, the queen of heaven, she's called one of these beings, who's uh, mentioned later in the Bible as well, and has an extensive career in human history. She has a temple there and she gives away the knowledge of writing itself. A group of humans are set aside. They're called the scribes. Why? Because writing records the laws of the gods. And what are these laws? They're, they're the codes of the matrix that will now govern, you know, organize everything. So, uh, th- these archaeologists were baffled because now they had to believe that civilization, the knowledge that is at the basis of civilization, that has carried us all the way to this to this day. Mathematics and astronomy and medicine and metallurgy and writing and religion and worship and kingship and music. All of these bodies of knowledge that 
are the foundation and the pillars of civilization that have carried us from the cradle all the way to the shores of California, that these bodies of knowledge were handed down according to our ancestors. And not only do the Mesopotamians say this, but all the civilizations maintain this. So does the Bible. But what happened was that as this knowledge came out, and these guys were like, what do we do? Can we even believe in this? There was a man, and his name was Gordon Child. Gordon Child was an Australian transplant to Britain. He was a flamboyant man, a passionate Marxist. And what he did, you know, he used to always, you know, have little sayings from Stalin that he would put through, you know, when he spoke. But he was also one of the most influential archaeologists of the past century. What he did is he wove together his colleagues' disconnected facts into an overarching intellectual scheme. Um, and the most famous of it arose in the 1920s. He basically said, guys, guys, nothing was handed down. We all know this is just a bunch of myth and the Bible is myth. I'm a Marxist. This is what happened, guys. These guys were hunter-gatherers, okay? One of them, one day, one morning, had a coup de génie. He had like a moment of epiphany. And he discovered farming. And he told his buddies, okay, we're going to farm. Then they all got together and they started farming. And because they weren't running after their food, they had more time on their hand. So they started thinking. And as they started thinking, they started talking to each other. And voila, they gave birth to mathematics and, you know, architecture and all of these things. That's actually what happened. And these archaeologists, um, many of them didn't go for it, but in, somehow his idea became the one that was taught to, through the university system and the school system. It matched more uh, the spirit of the secular age. Um, and so we were raised, even the people that read the Bible, ha read it from the perspective that these beings are mythological because... That is how our culture was shaped to see this past. However, our collective ancestors, all of them, from you know China to Egypt and Greece and Rome, to the actual words of the Bible into the Old and New Testament, collectively have always spoken about these beings as though they were real. This is just a new idea, actually, that they were not real. This is a 20th century idea. Well, the other theory about the origin of civilization in Samaria comes from Zechariah Sitchin and others and the idea of the Anunnaki, the group of deities. They came to this planet from a distant planet, Nibiru, and they created a human-alien hybrid race of slaves and this creation myth supposedly was translated by Sitchin and others on these Sumerian cuneiforms that you can see in the London Museum. So this ancient alien theory, of course, right. is so popular now. So how do you respond to this idea that the Anunnaki were not fallen angels, they were visitors from a distant planet? Well, I look at kind of the source and I ask myself, uh, which one has more credibility? So... Zachary Sitchin, Eric von Doniken, and a few other people, but especially Sitchin was focused on Mesopotamia. These guys are ancient astronaut theorists, and they came up with the idea that, wait a second, there's UFOs today, and all of these cultures are recording these, you know, beings from elsewhere, and, oh, there are UFOs in the past, and then they came up with the idea of the alien visitation, and Sitchin has his own, you know, th sub-theory regarding this 12th planet and all that. 
fine. I guess you can you can go with anything you want. Life is a mystery. We don't even know where we are or how we got here. But essentially, I've come to trust that the Bible is the actual words of God, meaning that regardless of all the conspiracies and, and uh, theories and all the bloody history uh, of the Catholic Church and, and the Church as a whole and whatever happened before, the actual Bible, uh, when you study it, you realize that its prophecies are very profound and are fulfilled time and time again. When you look at its history, you realize that these cities that it mentions are dug up by archaeologists. And of course, when you relate to its central character, the Messiah, you do receive the Spirit of the Most High. Your life is changed and you realize, wow, this is actually true. God has not left us in darkness and he has left the record of history of the true nature of reality so we can understand who these beings are so we will not be deceived. We understand how history took shape. Okay, so the nations were divided. They were given to these beings. And I'll read that passage in a moment. And God chose Israel. And that started a whole narrative that led all the way to the time of Christ. Then the Holy Spirit was poured on the nations. And that's why the polytheism was pushed back. And the knowledge of God was spread once again. So once you realize that the source material, that this book is very credible and it takes some time. Then you say, okay, instead of going with the thoughts of some gentleman from New York City who lived a few years on this earth uh, and came up with his own wild theory, I'm going to go with the actual words of God and use that as the measure of reality and truth. So getting back to Sitchin and the, the Anunnaki gods of Sumeria, who, and he believed that these were extraterrestrials. So we have these seven Sumerian gods, Enlil, who's later known as Alil and Enki and Ninhursag and Nana and Utu and Inanna and all of these. These are the sons of God. These are the sons of God. These are not Anunnaki from another planet, from the 12th planet. Well, Anunnaki means, I mean, I like this translation, Anunnaki, I get it. You know, he says those who from heaven to earth came, I get it. But that's what sons of God is as well. These beings that came from the realm of God and angels. And even their children, Nephilim, comes from the word Nephal, which means kind of a mixture of heaven and earth. Ali, hold on. We'll get back to that point. Ali Siadatan, Gods of the Old Testament, when the Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. the sky. Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Ali Siadatan stays with us for the full two hours, and we are talking about gods of the Old Testament, gods of the Bible, and we were talking about the Sumerians and the civilization that that uh, sprang forth seemingly out of nowhere, somewhere around 3,500 years ago. And this has given rise to, of course, uh, the the theory of the ancient alien theory, uh, um, Zechariah Sitchin and others talking about the Anunnaki, and we were talking about the gods uh, Enlil and um, uh, Enki uh, and others. Now, are they mentioned specifically in the Bible? Um, some of them are. Uh, the Bible, depending on you know which part you read, it it it's, uh, addresses a different culture of the time of the prophet. 
So Molech is, for instance, mes- mentioned. Damuz or Tumuzi is mentioned. Inanna or the Queen of Heaven is mentioned. Shemesh is mentioned, who is known as Shams or Apollo by the Greeks, the sun god. Um, and the Nachash or you know the serpent himself is mentioned, and he, you know, wears different masks. I I tend to believe that he he likes the character of the sky god. He's Enlil uh, to the Mesopotamians, uh, Marduk to the Babylonians, Zeus to the Greeks, Jupiter to the Romans. That's uh, I, I think the uh, you know the one that uh, is the leader. So there's a few that are mentioned by name, depending on which prophet's book you read, depending on which culture. Because as as the cultures move, they change. The names change, and the names change because the idea is that this particular pantheon um, and the head of the pantheon has now placed its scepter of rule in this nation, in this culture. It has chosen this uh, group of people to become the next empire. And so the uh, the names uh, um, reflect that culture. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a form of bonding. It's, you know, he is now of our culture, we are now of him. And so we see the scepter of rule starts in the south of Mesopotamia, and these city-states emerge, and the last of the city-states is Rome. Um, and each time the scepter of rule moves, the city-state that inherits it uh, grows to become an empire. Uh, you look at, for instance, you know, when when this messianic movement that eventually was called uh, Christianity spreads from Israel into the Greco-Roman world. Um, there's a problem because these guys believe that the gods are behind the empire. I mean, people don't know this, but a lot of the senators of Rome were priests of Zeus and of other gods. They, they were then they were also acting out in the political sphere because the political sphere in Rome and the religious sphere, the spiritual sphere, the connection to these beings was very closely knit together. But now there are all these Roman citizens who are denying the worship of these beings. They are refusing to sacrifice to them because now they're worshiping the one God of Israel and the sacrifice is, you know, Jesus. And this poses a problem. Uh, that's what, you know, brings about the periods of, of Christian persecution. The most famous is Diocletian, who is the last of the persecutors, the tenth one. And he kills more Christians by himself than all the other persecutions before him combined. But what's interesting is that this is how the whole thing begins. Diocletian sends a messenger to the oracle of Apollo at Delphi. And Apollo is the sun god, and and he has a huge history, uh, and I can talk more about him if you want. So he goes to the, uh, the oracle of Apollo Delphi, and the question is, what do I do with the Christians? That's the question the emperor asks. And the answer that Apollo gives is that the Christians are the enemies of the gods. And with that answer, Diocletian suspends the civil rights of all Christians. Um, he arrests them, he burns the Bibles, and he tortures them until they die or sacrifice to the gods. But the command comes from Apollo. It kind of shows you that this struggle as, as the spirit is pushing through into this new world, uh, a new new monotheistic age is, is coming of, uh, to, to birth, we see that these beings you know, are fighting back. And they continue, of course, to this day. Uh, they, 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 there's a plan 
moving forward, you know, there's a right. final confrontation. Yes. So Zeus uh, and or Jupiter in the Roman yes. world and these yes. in, the, in the pantheon. At a certain yeah. point, though, were they in direct communi- communication oh, with okay, right. the, with the leaders? Were they yes. actually ruling um, yes. here on Earth, or was it done sort of? Uh, okay, yeah, go ahead. It was the, so the rulers originally in the south of Mesopotamia, they were both priests and kings. Um, as the power structure moves forward, the king and the priest separate from each other. Um, so the priest would receive, you know, revelation. Uh, for instance, the altar of Zeus uh, in Pergamum, which was uh, the most important altar of, uh, of Zeus in the Greco-Roman world. Um, there, there was kind of a place that the priest would go and he would offer a sacrifice, and then he would go up the mountain, and there the spirit of Zeus would come over him, and then he would receive communication, and then he would communicate that to the emperor, for instance. Uh, if if that was the nature of the communication, um, they 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 also had their offsprings, and I know it's hard to believe because it's so far fetched from the way that you know we have been taught to understand the world. But they also had their offsprings that ruled for them. They had bloodlines, starting um, in, in the very beginnings of Western civilization. There was bloodlines that went back to these uh, gods, and these bloodlines formed royal families. Um, some would say that these bloodlines still are in the place of uh, wealth and rulership into our age. So that's another way they influenced the world. Uh, they had offsprings, they had priests, they were in direct communication. Even today, I hear stories because I research this phenomenon, which is now somehow changed shapes. We, we don't call them the gods, we call them the aliens. Um, but there are very important people that say these, you know, beings appeared in their bedroom and told them do this, make this decision. CEOs of companies, rulers of nations. It's this is something. Yes, there's lots of contact between these beings and the human world in, in many different ways. Yes. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. Come back. Uh, more conversation with Ali Siadatan, Gods and the Bible, and just a reminder. Top of the hour. We'll open up the phone lines, take questions and comments. Stay right where you are. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarek. Ali, just take a moment and tell people how they can uh, screen your documentary, UFOs, Angels and Gods, subscribe to your newsletter, etc. Everything is done for the website. Go to thinkagainproductions.com. Watch the documentary there. Sign up for the newsletter and the YouTube channel. There's a lot more coming. Um, and, you, you know, feel free to email me if you have any questions. You can also go to our Facebook page, UFOs, Angels, and Gods Facebook page, and, you know, like it, and you get all, I, I post there all the time. And my Twitter handle is Iconoclast. All right. Uh, we were talking about Zeus and Apollo. Now, yes. which one of these is Lucifer? Is it Apollo? I've heard Apollo mentioned. I've heard Zeus mentioned. Some have suggested that Apollo... Uh, or Apollyon, uh, also Abaddon, uh, yeah, is, yeah. The, is the Antichrist, and Zeus is Satan. Straighten that out for us if you can. Uh, well, my opinion is that definitely Zeus is Satan, because in Revelation chapter 2, there are seven letters written to seven congregations in Asia Minor. 
by you know Christ himself. These are seven letters that Jesus wrote, um, and they're in the New Testament, but they're tucked away in the book of Revelation. And when he writes to the church of Pergamum, he says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he mentions that actually twice to them. And so uh, it makes me think, okay, if he's talking about the city of Pergamum and, and saying that Satan's throne is there, uh, what could that be? Um, he, he says, to the angel of Messiah's community in Pergamum, write, thus says the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you continue to hold firm to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan resides. So Antipas was the bishop uh, of the congregation of that city. He was taken by the priests of Zeus to the altar of Pergamum, which was the most important altar to Zeus in the entire Greco-Roman world. It was a very important place. Sacrifices were offered 24-7 from all over the empire. And they put him inside of the bull, which was, which is one of the symbols of, of Zeus, and you see it on the, on the Euro, you know, bill, uh, because Europa, you know, your bull, Zeus becomes a bull and he kidnaps Europa. Um, and so they put him inside of this brazen bull, and then they light the, the fire underneath the bull, and, and, and they melt him while he's in there. And they put all these, you know, uh, it has these mechanisms in the bull to capture the groans and moans of the person being sacrificed at, to this, uh, the altar of Zeus so that the bull comes to life. And, and apparently uh, Antipas prayed for his congregation until his death. And this altar was really something that was the, fantastic and it was discovered there by this German engineer turned archaeologist, Carl Human. At the end of the 19th century, it was brought to Berlin. A, a museum was built exclusively for it so that its entirety could be displayed in, in Berlin. And then Albert Speer, who was the architect of Hitler, walked into the museum. He fell in love with it, and he decided that he was going to build a gigantic version of it um, in Nuremberg, where Hitler uh, stood on top of it, and where the bull was, where, where the symbol of Zeus, where these enemies would be sacrificed, um, he put the microphone uh, where Hitler would speak. And it was from that altar that Hitler declared the Holocaust from, the, from Nuremberg. So, so there's these interesting connections. But because Jesus points to this altar, I believe, um, and he says that this is Satan's throne, I think that's a very clear indication that he's equating Zeus with Satan, so that solves that problem. Wait a minute. But so Apollo, Satan's Satan's throne is still sitting in a museum in Berlin. Yes. Remarkable. Because the Western world is the imperial seat. You know, as these angels have different territories, it is the Western world that is the one that he has kept for himself. That is why the greatest industry, the greatest knowledge, the greatest military, and the greatest financial power lies here. Hmm. Um, and what about Apollo? Uh, so Apollo, the sun god, he is one of the top-ranking uh, fallen angels. Uh, for instance, if, if, if people want to Google the code of Hammurabi, which is one of the most ancient codes uh, in existence, one of the most ancient laws, and a very influential system of law, 
um, you can see that there is um, uh, at the very top of the of the code, and there's two copies of this, one in the Louvre Museum in Paris, and the other is in the Museum of uh, Pre-Islamic History in Tehran, and I've seen that one there. Um, there is Hammurabi the king standing in front of a man, a giant man sitting on a throne, handing a scroll to him. That is Shams, uh, the sun god, who will be known as Apollo to the Greeks. And he is giving the code of the kingdom of Hammurabi to him. He's called the god of justice, and, and the entire... Uh, first portion of the code is basically singing praises to him, and so there's a, he has a very, there's a you know a, an important territory that uh, a portion of the world that is under his command. There's the moon god um, uh, who has different names Nana Sin, and he has another portion uh, 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 of the planet under his command. So these beings they they have command over different regions of the earth. Um, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, which is an idiom for you know, fallen angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And of course, the church is grafted into the new covenant. For a portion from the Gentiles are grafted in. But these guys continue to have kind of a role, and that's what uh, the war is about. And that's what I think Paul is referring to in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says that we don't struggle with flesh and blood, but with principalities, uh, you know, in high places. He's referring to this continued spiritual battle, but it is happening through the very institutions, uh, the territories, the nations, the empires, the very history that we are all living. This is our story, after all. Well, you, right, because you mentioned the bull, which is a symbol for Zeus, is yes. featured prominently in the European Union. We have Europa on the back of the bull on some of the currency. Um, yes, and another symbol of Zeus. The eagle is on all the flags from Moscow to D.C. So between the eagle and the, and the bull, you can see that the industrial world from Moscow to all through Europe into North America is the territory that bears his symbol. And Apollo. We had the Apollo space program. Uh, yes. That's interesting. Why choose Apollo? Uh, yeah, exactly. Why? Starting, you know, in the 18th century, there was a whole thing that started with Apollo was the muse. Apollo was the one that, you know, inspired songs. Even Beethoven, you know, when he wrote the Ode to Joy, you know, all these guys, you know, they, they, in their letters, they talk about how they hope that Apollo inspires them he has been a very important character. Now, is he connected to the Apollyon? And there's a, you know, a facility in Switzerland. CERN is built on the land that was used in ancient times for the Temple of Apollo. And if you kind of Google the opening ceremony of CERN, I mean, someone mentioned that to me, you know, a couple of years ago and said, hey, look at the open ceremony of CERN. And pray before you look at it because it's very strange. And I was like, well, how strange could it be? It's the opening ceremony of a, of a physics facility. Right, the Hadron Collider. You look at it and it is definitely very strange what's going on. And then when, as you kind of go into the place, there's all kinds of quotations from various scriptures hanging down on flags. So some people think, okay, maybe there's more happening here because these angels, these fallen angels... You know, they may be behind the Industrial Revolution and the Digital Age. 
ultimately the idea is to put implants where humanity becomes digitized and through AI connects to them. And and who knows where it's going? I mean, these are conjectures. We'll have to kind of see it unfold. However, they are behind knowledge. That's that's what we see from the very beginning. They hand down knowledge. The knowledge they're handing down is to pervert the world for their purposes and then perhaps to prepare the world to meet the God Almighty on the fields of Armageddon in Israel at his return, perhaps to upgrade our technology to the level of angelic technology so that we can actually have this war. I mean, it says that in the Bible in many places that the world's going to go to war with the second coming of God. That sounds crazy, right? How is that going to happen? We're coming up on the uh, top of the hour. We'll open up the phone lines, questions, comments. My conversation with Ali Seattleton. God's in the Bible continues. Stay right there. <laughs> 